Kunai has been at the forefront of digital and financial services for years, believing customers want what they want, when and how they want it. Kunai exists to cut through the noise and consider how fintech and financial services can do even better delivering for customers. Today, Kunai partners with leading companies including MasterCard, Visa, and more to build seamless customer experiences that unite digital products with fintech. It promises to deliver digital experiences that your customers will love, while also reducing time to value through Kunai's implementation knowledge and IP. Interested in partnering with them? Get in touch. I don't think there's any reason that that can't be true. What I would say is that that is a lot less profitable than selling a huge number of options trades to people who are buying a ton of SKU and doing it like a lot, both in terms of like the underlying economics and in terms of the competition. There is a ton of competition for basic banking services. They're effectively a competitor with places like Venmo or Cash App, just as much as they are with Wells Fargo or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. I think they can have success there, but the returns on capital are going to be a lot lower than their payment for order flow business. Hey everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And in this episode, I am joined by macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group, George Perks, who is also a friend of mine and also someone that worked on the Robinhood S1 deep dive with me. And this episode, we are recording on Tuesday, so two days before they actually list, but this will air the day that Robinhood debuts under the ticker H-O-O-D on the NASDAQ. So when this is airing, you might be listening to it when it's already trading and we're kind of diving into what we think it's going to look like and where we think the company is kind of going to go from here because we both of us have spent a lot of time diving into this company now, George. I think we both know a lot about them, more so than we did even just a couple of weeks ago at this point. <laughs> yeah, the S1 had a ton of interesting stuff. And um, a lot of companies, when they drop an S1, you're left sort of wanting more than they give you. Um, and there wasn't as much of that as I thought uh, from what Robinhood did disclose. I mean, you can always want more granular data in terms of number of users or revenue per user or specific cohorts or whatever. And and, and, you know, it's never going to be enough, but they actually did a surprisingly large disclosure around like what their business actually looks like. So that was kind of nice uh, for f to be able to analyze the business with a more complete picture than I think a lot of IPOs will give. When you were diving into it, obviously you've paid attention to Robinhood before. You look at the markets a lot. It's what you do for your day job and everything. What stood out to you? Like, was there anything that was surprising finally being able to get a look at the numbers besides Dogecoin making up such a large portion of its revenue? Yeah, I mean, I just think the number of or the the value per user that they're generating, like the, the ARPU is really incredible. Um, you know, it's clear that a lot of their users, I mean, we don't know exactly what the percentages are because, again, they're not going to give you perfect granularity, but a lot of their users are using the app a lot. Um, it's not just people signing on, um, you know, signing up for an account, making a trade and then forgetting about it. Um, I'm sure there is a large cohort of those users, but they have such high revenue per user numbers that, that there can only be so many of those, um, given the typical size of the trades that investors are placing and, um, you know, how much revenue you can expect from a given trade of that size for Robinhood. So um, I, I think, you know, it, there is more durable customer activity than I think um, I would have expected. And I, I'd say that was the biggest outright surprise to me. 
Um, the profitability is, you know, as it flows down from that is probably higher than I would have expected as well um, as a consequence of more, more revenues per user. Um, and I, I think, you know, those two things are probably the, the biggest surprises to me, although they weren't like completely out of left field. So something that I haven't had a chance to look at yet is what does that look like compared to some of these other brokerages that we see? So a Charles Schwab, a TD, an interactive, some of the ones that, you know, used to charge commissions. Now they don't anymore because everyone was going to Robinhood to do their first time trading and not have to pay commissions and whatnot. But what does that average revenue per user look like for some of those more incumbent players versus someone like a Robinhood? Well, we don't really have a great idea of that. And part of the reason is because of differences in disclosure. So Robinhood is treating these as monthly average users, whereas that's not typically how you'd see a Schwab um, or um, an interactive broker, interactive brokers or whoever report. Um, you know, I, I think um, the the numbers are lower because there's they're lower ticket sizes. Um, but you know, on average, their their user, you know, the Robinhood pitch is that their user base is so um, accessible and so underserved that they're trying to deliver. You know, they're they're trying to focus on groups of people that wouldn't be making big trades at those other brokerages anyway. So I think, you know, the steady state for Robinhood, certainly how they pitch themselves is much lower balances per user, um, you know, much lower revenue per user, but a lot more users than you would see from, again, like an Interactive Brokers or a Charles Schwab or what have you. Um, and that's explicitly part of their strategy, right? That's not that's not a, a knock. Um, they are trying to deliver a more mass financial product than, you know, something like Interactive Brokers, which if, I don't know if you ever used their platform before, but <clears throat> there are some huge advantages to it for sure um, in terms of cost and in terms of what you can do with it. But if you're a retail investor, you really don't want to be using it. It's very hard to use. There's lots of sort of Byzantine um, uh, user interfaces and, and that sort of thing. And, and part of that is interactive brokerage strategy. Again, like that's that's in large part intentional. But I guess I would just say like you really can't comp compare them like for like because they're they're operating with different segmentation in mind. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of these like first time investors and then interactive being more of a, a complicated platform. And I have tested both of them out. So I know what you mean. Interactive is like you open the thing up and there's all these charts and tools and all these things that someone that's never traded before is like, I don't have any idea what any of this means. Whereas Robinhood is a very sleek mobile interface. It's super easy. Like we'll populate a lot of the popular tickers that someone like me or other millennials and Gen Z are already looking at but very different products. But what would you say in terms of, do you think Robinhood can hold onto people as they start trading more? Or do you think, you know, this has been one of those arguments is do people graduate to other platforms in the future if they want to become more serious about trading? It's a really interesting question and I'm not sure it actually matters. Um, so here's, <laughs> here's what I'm getting at there. Um, because of the payment for order flow model um, that Robinhood bases its revenue on, um, what Robinhood, Robinhood does best with is um, lots of trades. They don't necessarily have to be large in size. It's more the number of trades that's important and um, very uncorrelated trades from like a very diverse investor base, right? So you want a lot of people all pressing buttons going a bunch of different directions all at the same time. And what that does is creates like nice um, even distributions of outcomes, right? Um, you know, if you think about flipping a coin, you can flip a coin and get 10 heads in a row, but it's very unlikely you're going to get 10 heads in a row on a 50-50 coin toss, right? Um, whereas if the odds that the coin uh, goes heads is 70%, uh, it's much, much more likely you're going to get 
that that 10 in a row. Um, so basically what, what Robinhood wants is this nice even distribution and you know a lot of activity inside that distribution because that's what's easiest, that's the most valuable order flow that the uh, payment for order flow um, buyers want to buy, right? Um, that's a nice uh, statistically clean, you know, despite individuals being very noisy, the aggregate is very statistically clean. It means they can um, inventory and have a good idea that if they take the other side of a trade from a retail investor now, at some other point in the day, in the trading day or in the next few minutes, another retail investor is going to come along and take them out of their position, and they'll make their spread, and it'll it'll work out really well. So um, that's what what Robinhood wants. It turns out that the sort of users that are best at sort of creating this noise are people that aren't really using Robinhood in the sort of oh I'm a novice investor and I want to learn, and I want to own stocks for the long run, I want to invest and whatever. They're doing it because it's effectively a a, a high um, skew. Um, Hot, low expected probability outcome that they can feed their risk appetite with. Um, I'm explicitly not calling this gambling because I don't think that's the right way to spin it. And I think it attaches like a normative um, judgment um, on that sort of risk appetite. And I don't think that's the right way to look at these people. Um, that sort of appetite for skew is visible in all sorts of things, whether it's you know gaming stocks um, like DraftKings, which I think is a better comp for Robinhood than um, a... Uh, interactive or a Charles Schwab, um, or even like social events, like going out to bars and meeting people is a risky thing in the sense that like you have to put yourself out there and like it could be really fun, but it might not be. Um, so, you know, what Robinhood wants is these people that have this desire for skew um, and it wants them to, to be placing lots of trades over a long period of time. And it whether, you know, these sorts of people are not going to move on to, you know, cracking 10Ks and, you know, doing super advanced technical analysis on the interactive broker platform or, you know, that sort of thing. They're they're basically chasing the payoff um, and the payoff isn't going to change on other platforms. All the changes is the difficulty getting to it, um, you know, so. I think from that perspective, um, those sort of long payoff, high profitability trades, and by the way, for everything I just said, it gets even more true for options than it does for single stock stuff. It gets even more true for crypto than it does for single stock stuff. Um, for those sorts of um, customers, you know, there isn't really a threat actually from, um, for instance, um, Charles Schwab or one of these more traditional brokers. Um, I think the threat is that other sources of risk appetite are are what come to the fore. Whether that's um, gaming stops stocks, you know, DraftKings is a perfect example. Whether it's doing stuff in you know real time with your friends, um, going out to dinner, meeting a lot of new people at the bar, whatever the thing may be. Um, as the economy normalizes, I think that's a bigger threat um, than what we've seen from other brokerages so far. And so far. Um, you know, the evidence we see in terms of the MAU numbers and the um, ARPU numbers from uh, Robinhood is that is that they're they're doing just fine as the economy reopens and that there isn't a big um, a big sort of drop off in the amount of activity on the platform. The other thing that, you know, putting graduating trading aside, something that they talked a lot about, especially on Saturday when they did their um, roadshow. From, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just kind of like looked at the notes. And one of the big things was adding different types of accounts. So they have this cash management account, which they launched a while ago, but they talked about retirement accounts and other things. And for me, I'd love to know if you have a different opinion than me on this. For me, I don't know that people will ever think of Robinhood as more than just like this trading platform. I don't see that a lot of those customers are going to think of it as a bank account or a retirement account, et cetera. 
Do you agree on that? Or do you think that they might be able to do better in those add-on services than what I'm giving them credit for? They're certainly trying really hard, right? In terms of how they're presenting themselves in the S1 and in their branding, they're trying to say, we're going to liberate financial services. This is going to be like some, you know, big change in how individual people access and think about their, their financial services instead of banks or brokers. We're talking about a very slick, easy to use app that's all in one place and so on and so forth. Um, I don't think there's any reason that they, that can't be true. What I would say is that that is a lot less profitable than, you know, selling a huge number of options trades to people who are buying a ton of SKU and doing it like a lot, like high turnover, right? Um, both in terms of like the underlying economics and in terms of you know, the competition. Um, there is a ton of competition for basic banking services um, and not just in from basic banks, but, um, you know, if, if Robinhood is trying to do cash management, you know, they're effectively a competitor with places like Venmo um, uh, on PayPal's platform or Cash App on Square's platform, um, just as much as they are with Wells Fargo or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Um, so I, you know, I, I think I think they can have success there, but the returns on capital are going to be a lot lower than their paying for order flow business. Um, on that, I have great confidence. No, I agree. So, what would be the incentive for them to have these add-on services? Would it just be to make the customer more sticky that they are likely to stick with them versus switch to another platform if you have more than one service with them? Um, you know, if that other services aren't going to be generating as much revenue, or would it be? protecting themselves against any sort of legislative change to payment for order flow, which we've discussed a little bit in that report as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think diversification is always a decent argument for why businesses open up new lines. Um, you know, you would see less volatility in a cash management business than you would in something like payment for order flow based, you know, equities trading um, or crypto based trading or whatever. Um I think there is definitely an argument that one that, that there would be a network effect and a platform effect from if your cash management account is with Robinhood, then it's really easy to you know dip into your cash to take some risk. Um, you know, likewise with retirement, um, it's all very convenient, all in the same place, all easy to use. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a good customer retention and acquisition argument for having these services added. And um, I don't, I don't think it's silly of Robinhood to push into those areas. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but just because it's a good idea doesn't mean it'll be wildly profitable. And I don't, I don't think it will be. Um, I don't think that's like the next big massive growth engine for the company. I think the company is really levered to the number of people that want to take a bunch of risk and like how it can find them. Um, and, you know, it, if it continues to be successful in finding that pool of people that want to take a lot of risk and, and you know, exhorting them to do so, it's going to be profitable and very profitable long term. Um, if it's stuck basically as a neobank or as, you know, a slightly improved version of existing financial services, I mean, it'll still be around. It's not like it'll go bankrupt or something, but it just won't be as um, profitable or as exciting. Um, and the regulatory risk to me is is very real, um, even though I don't actually think there's a problem with payment for order flow as, a, as, a, as an in industrial setup for the um, brokerage industry. Um, I, you know, I think for the type of people that are trading in Robinhood accounts, um, payment for order flow is actually a very good thing. Um, and they get much better execution than they would, um, you know, with a different, you know, strictly commission-based system, for instance. Um, so, you know, where I think there may be bigger issues long-term, um, you know, 
is is this sort of idea that Robin Hood is looking for people seeking skew, and we tend to look as a society less favorably on those businesses for a variety of normative reasons, which again, I don't, I don't want to take a, a view on um, other than just note that that's a thing that could be a problem for them if, you know, I mean, we had examples over the past year where a young man um, took his own life after um, an incorrectly communicated margin call, right? Um, if you've got a big uh, group of people who are taking a lot of risk a lot of the time, you're going to have a lot of very adverse events like that. And, you know, the desire to crack down on that, I think, is going to be pretty, pretty big if you think that Robinhood can get to a scale where 50 million people are using their services regularly to, you know, um, take a lot of risk. Obviously, COVID and people not being able to use things like DraftKings as much made it so a lot of them turned to places like Robinhood in order to make trades. Uh, what do you think this dynamic looks like in the future? And I think this is going to be probably one of the biggest things that people have focused on both on the roadshow as well as what they'll be looking for in their earnings calls and earnings statements in the future, right? Because the the amount of growth they saw in you know the second half of last year and then the first half of this year with crypto going so crazy um it's not necessarily sustainable and i don't think they think it's sustainable either it's just amount of you know how much of that does actually stay sort of like payments now everyone wants to do digital payments and e-commerce how much of that stays versus how many people actually end up going back to the store using cash again stuff like that yeah so um, I think starting with the second question first, I mean, I, I think e-commerce is still such a low penetration of total good sales, um, let alone services, that it's a pretty safe bet that if you invest in e-commerce, that that's going to be beneficial to your business, almost no matter what you're doing. I, you know, there was a story this week about um, the advent of QR codes for menus and for pricing and for service um, at restaurants. And, you know, that's a good example of e-commerce that is negligible penetration currently. Um, but if you think about um, full, you know, dining that is currently full service, but is not a luxury good. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking of going to Chili's, right? Um, if that is shifting over time to a less labor intensive model via technology solutions, I mean, that's e-commerce, right? That's, that's going to be a factor for decades to come, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, leaving aside um, the fact that before the pandemic and before before like 2019, I spent almost no money with my with Nike um, because I had a bunch of leftover Duke football gear. <laughs> and then I realized that their app was great. They have free shipping for members. They're really easy to use. And now I'm buying stuff a couple times a month or once every couple months from Nike in a way that is totally enabled by e-commerce. And I never would have done if I just had to go down to their outlet or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the e-commerce shift and being in payments and being trying to get onto those networks or become those networks makes a lot of sense. Um, the other side of that question, you know, the reopening trade and how sticky the customers are. I mean, I think what, from what we saw in the S1, there has not been a huge drop off in ARPU or in MAUs. Um, you know, you've definitely seen growth slow a ton, um, as you would expect. You're never going to be able to sustain the kind of growth that you would see from Q1, Q2 of last year. Um, and, you know, the crypto bear market that we've been in since mid-May has definitely contributed to that. Volumes across total crypto market cap are down substantially. Um, you know, you just have less interest in that space. Obviously, equity markets, the meme stocks are still around, but it's a much less sort of day-to-day, -day, you know, wild skew fest than it was in January of this year or February of this year. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, 
the fact that they've been able to hold up their their revenue per user, their profitability, they haven't had huge attrition in their existing customer base. Those are all to me pretty positive signs because for most of the country at this point, we're 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 basically back to normal or close enough that it's it's not a big difference. Um, some large events aren't still going, but if you want to go out to a bar on a Friday night in this country right now, you can pretty much everywhere, just like you could pre-pandemic. Um, and so from my perspective, I think it's fact that we're in that situation now and have been for you know four or five months, and we have yet to see a big attrition in terms of revenue per user or in terms of user counts. Um, that's a good sign that they're going, going to be able to hold on and, and keep growing as the economy normalizes. Yeah, I agree. Um, So one last question. So like I said, we're recording this two days before they actually go public and uh, we're going to go out on a limb here. So according to stories, they're looking for a pricing range between $38 and $42 a share as much as a $35 billion valuation. What do we think they'll actually end up pricing at and what do we think they end up opening at? Because as we've seen with other IPOs in the past, especially um, some of the, the fintech ones that I can think of, like Lemonade, Affirm, and others, they've opened so much higher than where they've actually priced, which is good news for the people that use Robinhood and do get allocation to the IPO pricing of the stock. But do we think that Robinhood's going to have that same sort of bounce that a lot of others have had? So just before I, I offer some ideas here, this is not investment advice. <laughs> I am essentially guessing because I have no visibility into the order book. I have very little understanding of who exactly is going to be in the market to sell or buy after the open um, when it prices. So please, please, please do not invest based on this sort of spiel I'm about to give. It is nothing more than an educated guess, and I really can't emphasize that enough. Um, I would not be surprised if we saw the, the IPO price at the top of the range or higher um, spike huge and then collapse. I, I think they're, they have explicitly said they want a lot of retail investors in this thing. Um, the, you know, they're, they're targeting being one of the largest share of retail owners in IPO history. And, um, good luck with that guys. <laughs> I like, I just, that is not, you know, that is not the shareholder base you want, um, for a stock that's trading for the first time, because that, shareholder base is going to be very fickle and very um, hard to predict. And if we see a bunch of people jump in and say, yeah, we want allocations, we want allocations, um, the stock pops. And then, you know, people that don't have that have a less aggressive lockup, this this IPO has a less aggressive lockup than is standard in the industry. If they see the thing trading at 60 uh, and start hitting the offer um, or lifting the offer, I think, uh I, I just I, I could see a, a big mess uh, for retail investors coming out of this one if and and if they're they're a big part of your um, shareholder base it good luck so yeah I, I, I that's just a guess though again don't don't submit an IPO allocation or trade it on the first day based on what I'm saying here because I don't know and probably nobody else does either just don't rely on my on my views here. if only we had a crystal ball George. <laughs> sorry I don't I definitely don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one thing that they are doing is trying to make people hold on to the stock for a while, but it's not something they're like forcing people to do. It's just, I forget the exact wording, but it says, oh, you need to hold it for X number of days. Otherwise you risk not being allowed to get future IPO allocations for X amount of time. Like, 
I'm willing to take that risk if I see a massive pop and can make a lot of money. I'll be like, I'll just sell and not be able to get the next IPO allocation. Like, that's fine. How many <laughs> – what's what's Robinhood going to do in terms of IPO allocations though in general? Like, like how, mu- how big are the allocations they're going to have to work with in the first place? Like, I'm, yeah, I'm just – like the question. answer is not big, right? Like, they're, they're, they mm-hmm. don't have the dis- – I mean, I don't know. So that seems like a pretty empty threat. And it would also be interesting to hear a regulator's opinion on that. Um, I don't really have a strong view that it would be like contrary to any sort of regulation, but kind of raises your eyebrow. Buy our stuff or we won't let you buy stuff from us in the future. Like, hmm, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's not really how it's supposed to work, I don't think. I'll put my, I asked you to put yourself out on a limb here. So I'm going to put myself out on a limb, but again, this is not investment advice, even though I've met with the company before and whatnot, they don't, you, no one knows what's going to happen with this offering. Even a lot of the bankers on the deal, they might have a better idea than George and I do right now, but they don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, so I would say it prices above the range. The top was 42. I think it prices at like 44, 45. Um, and then I think it opens probably, you know, a good chunk above that. I would say like 60 or so dollars a share could pop to close to a hundred and then come crashing down. Maybe not that same day, but within the first few trading days, I think there's a lot of stabilization after that. So a lot like what we saw with Coinbase, I want to say. So Coinbase was a little bit different since it was a direct listing. So it was different in terms of like what the IPO price was since it just like listed where the demand was, but it saw like this massive rise. And then within a day or two, it was much lower than where, um, you know, it had skyrocketed to on that first day of trading. I will say just in general, um, like it's important to distinguish if you're going to be investing in IPOs um, or recently IPO stocks, like without any specific comment on like how this bears on Robinhood, it's really important to remember that the underlying business can be doing great or terrible and you can have completely opposite results in the market because the market is trying to find equilibrium and doesn't always do that right away. Um, If you're trading GE um, or IBM or Netflix, there's a huge amount of time and energy and capital that's invested in understanding like what the underlying business is doing, um, who has what shares, you know, where um, demand and supply of the stock actually is. And it's, there's, there's, you know, you can have new information that moves the stock, obviously, but there's a lot of collective understanding there. For, for recent IPOs, for companies like Robinhood, it just, it doesn't exist. So even if you get the underlying business analysis exactly right, you can still get blown up on stuff that has nothing to do with that. And I just, you know, just keep that in mind. If you're going to be investing in this IPO or any other one, there are risk factors that go way beyond sort of the actual stuff in the S1 that shows like, oh, here's the risk factor to our business. Totally. Um, If you guys want to follow along to see what happens, definitely subscribe to our newsletter. I will put that link in the show notes as well as a link to George's Twitter, my Twitter, and the report that we worked on with Mario from The General. So you guys can go through the S1. It'll be great reading for your weekend or maybe the morning before the IPO. Um, to get you guys ready to really understand the business in case you do want to be one of those retail investors getting allocation in this stock. Uh, Otherwise, thank you, George. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Julia. It was a pleasure. Always good to catch up and we'll hope to see you soon.